Pick up your copy of the new issue of Film Comment, featuring an extensive interview with Kelly Reichardt, along with an essay on her latest, First Cow. Also, an interview with the directors of the fiery genre mashup Baccarat, Michael Kreski on The Perseverance of Cinema, Amy Taubin on Sundance Highlights, and Pietro Marcello on the inspiration behind his Martin Eden. Support independent, nonprofit film journalism today at filmcomment.com. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Nicholas Rapold, and I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Film Comment. Today, we continue our special homebound version of the podcast, as we all do our best to stay connected and stay sane. As before, we're talking about what we've been watching and how being stuck at home is leading us to try some new movies, as well as return to comfort food. We hope you enjoy our latest selection, and if you like, we'd love for you to join us and watch along with us. For our latest episode, I'm joined by Soraya Nadia McDonald, culture critic for The Undefeated and contributing editor to Film Comment, and by Devika Girish, our assistant editor. Let's go to the conversation. Please note this episode features a musical treat, courtesy of Michael Koreski, who's been working his way through the Michel Legrand songbook. Enjoy. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Nick Rapold. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Film Comment, and this is another episode in our special at-home edition where we talk about movies, keep each other company, and generally try to, you know, stave off panic (laughs) and other feelings, you know. Movies always an important part of our lives. Now, um, you know, it's it's a nice uh, alternate reality <laughs> to stay in. Um, and for today's dose of um, um, movie world, um, I'm very pleased to be joined uh, by a special guest. I'm Soraya Nadia McDonald. I'm the culture critic for The Undefeated and a contributing editor for Film Comment. I'm, I'm coming to you from my apartment in Bed-Stuy. <laughs> Yes, we're all sheltering um, in place. I'm in the Lower East Side. And my editorial colleague. Hi, I'm Devika Girish, assistant editor, and I am holed up in Harlem. So, uh, truly interborough podcast. Yeah, we are <laughs> spread out. Wow. We are. <laughs> yeah, that's social distancing at work right there. <laughs> We take it very seriously. For us, it's at least like a hundred blocks. Or so. <laughs> um, gosh, I just laughed about social distancing. I think it might be okay. Well, we're you know things are always developing each day, and, and I know everyone's worrying about a ton of things um, for just general film community. Um, you know, it's continuing situation. I mean, uh, of you know theaters uh, in New York being closed. Um, and just general, uh, you know, general New York um, rules and regulations kind of increasing about, uh, you know, um, how many people can be together. What is it? It's 10 or more can't be together now. Is that what it is? Well, yeah, that was the right. presidential, uh, oh, the presidential statement. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that, yeah, that's, that's, that's one thing. And people are trying, you know, sort of adapting, I think more finding ways to connect online. Um, you know, many festivals are, are actually going online or moving part of their lineup online. And I'm, I'm curious to see how that will pan out like cinema, Durrell, 
Um, CPH Docs, I think, also said that it'll move some stuff online. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ann Arbor Film Festival. Yeah. First look at at the Momi has been doing some online premieres. Yeah. So it's a lot of the smaller ones. Yes. Yeah. I I think I just got an email about the um the German short film festival, the Kurzfilmtage. I think they're ultimately gonna uh want to do something online. So yeah, that's definitely happening in the film festival space. Then you had, I think we already talked about it, but the announcement that Universal would be um, basically streaming new releases. Uh, and that's both ones that have come out already, uh, like The Hunt, uh, the hunt, for example, <laughs> if you have an urge to see The Hunt now. And which The I, Invisible Man. And The Invisible Man, which, uh, we, yeah, which we might want to talk about. Um, yeah, in, I definitely um, need to see that. Yeah. Me too. I'm actually kind of glad that I can see it on Friday. Any other stories from uh, from the front, which, where we all are now? Uh, you know, I've been trying to track all the things that have been moving online or are now available because of this, this period we're all in. There are filmmakers and companies that are uh, making, you know, parts of their catalog available for, mm-hmm. for some time. So a couple recent ones, Sky Hopinka made all of his shorts available online. So if uh, it's on his website, so, you know, if anyone's interested, I'm sure that would make for a really beautiful and immersive distraction. Yeah. And I believe La Flore has been available to rent for a while on the Grasshopper website. I know they pushed it out again and Mm -hmm. a lot of people might use this time to, to see all 14 hours of it. So yeah, there's that and people are sharing you know links of what's available there's screen slate aka stream slate uh, we've you know we've plugged before i think now they're also you know, sharing recommendations um and then i um you know there's also you know opera i guess is streaming at, at night uh oh yeah, yeah that's true yeah. the meta's the meta's offering their like nightly hd performances um for free Actually, like that reminds me, like one of the things that I've been interested in is now that like theaters, because I also cover a lot of theater, now that theaters are sort of pivoting to streaming productions um, for their ticket buyers online, um, but, you know, and they're filming them, I'm wondering if like who is doing that and like if there's an opportunity for filmmakers to sort of like collaborate um with this medium uh because I was really curious about like how that was going to turn out and like the last theater performance that I saw before everything was closed um was a performance of Sanctuary City at um the Lucille Lortel Theater in Greenwich Village. Um, it's a production of New York Theater Workshop. And I know they like film all of their productions like for archival purposes. Mm. Um, but it's not like, you know, they just sort of like plop a camera like in the middle of the audience and then like press record. Like they had three, um, you know, so they mm. had like one on stage right, one on stage left, and then one... Um, recording from above from the from the balcony um you know and obviously 
you know, and then what next year, I think Disney is releasing um, Hamilton. Oh, wow. Um, And so now I'm wondering, I'm like, okay, what is this sort of like stage to screen, not quite adaptation, but like, you know, what is that capturing look like? Yeah. Yeah. Like what can that bring to sort of both of those mediums? Although Um, would they be actually able to... Oh, physically. Uh, yeah, physically film things, have a crew at this time. Because that's another thing, right? So many right. productions are being stalled, right. including the Batman starring Robert Pattinson. Oh, Uh-oh. is that one of the productions that's been shut down? Yes. Oh, boy. Okay. Very sorry state of affairs, I must say. <laughs> oh, Batman. <laughs> but it's in, it's been interesting seeing how people are occupying themselves, I guess, for better or worse. But I, I, I guess everyone's seen different different tweets. One I saw was Amy Adams reading aloud, which um, I thought was kind of kind of comforting in a way. And then Broadway performers are doing some stuff or... Although apparently, like, with everything else, there's rights issues. Oh, um, because right. I know, like, Ashley Ford was like, hey, I want to, you know, do sort of like a daily stream reading aloud and then basically sort of had to walk that back because um, I guess that's a copyright violation. <laughs> oh, great. Of her own <laughs> uh, reading what? Um... No, of, of other people's work. Oh, um, Interesting. Which is which is really a shame, you know, the same with, I guess, yeah, if you wanted to do like, I don't know, like a table read of a script or a play, um, you might run into like the same issues. So this this opens a new reading of um, Fahrenheit 451, that the firemen are really just copyright enforcers. <laughs> right. Going- <laughs> it is interesting to, you know, think about what are the things we will end up really enforcing. There's been news about how uh, telecom companies are removing broadband caps during this period. And I don't know, it's just mm. fascinating to see yeah. which there's obviously uh, the these closures and all the changes that we're societally putting into place, they have so much bureaucratic nitty gritty that I think we're like, as lay people, we're not even aware of. Like every industry has its little, what we're talking about, copyright infringement, that's maybe like particular to our media sphere, media Mm. and literary sphere. And every industry has those little things. And I think it's going to be interesting to see how we confront them as this goes on, what changes, what, remains as um essential to enforce yeah the 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 broadband cap is like particularly irritating right because you know the the reason that they gave for that was like oh like you know if we don't do it then you know everyone will basically suffer every you know streaming will be slower for everyone um and you know that basically hasn't happened (laughs) Right. Right. And I saw someone say on Twitter, you know, this is an interesting time to find out what uh, rules are just fake and made up. Exactly. Yeah. Don't actually serve a material purpose. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. It's kind of like kind of like the way like, I don't know, 
cell phone, you know, rates used to be insane when they first started out for various like long distance or whatever. And then we just realized that was all just made up. Anyway, <laughs> um, one of many things. And um, now look at us in three different boroughs in New York. That's right. Connecting yeah. seamlessly. Yeah. It Which does is... feel like we're in an episode of Black Mirror a little bit, though. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> like oh, everybody man. is. I, you know, like before, I will say like before March, maybe, I don't think I'd ever heard of Zoom. Oh, right. Me and neither. Me all of neither. a sudden, everyone was like, let's do a Zoom conference. And I'm like, what is that? <laughs> I am yeah. discovering so many new uh, tech services that people use for all kinds of online interaction. It's, it's interesting. Yeah. I like that's where our minds go in terms of dystopia. It's like <laughs> teleconference. <laughs> that's the nightmare. But um, what we've been trying to do is is kind of have a, a particular movie um, that we kind of center things on uh, initially. I mean, I'm saying what we've been trying to do. This is now our third episode, but we'll be doing more. Um, and so for this one, actually, Sarai, do you want to in- inter- introduce um, yeah, sure. Well, thanks to Milestone Films, um, Losing Ground, uh, which is by Kathleen Collins, is now on a Criterion Collection. Um, so it's available to stream. Um, for a long time, it was really difficult uh, to find it. And it's just, I think, this beautiful film um, from Kathleen Collins. It's like semi-autobiographical. Um, it stars Sarah Scott and Bill Gunn. Um, as this married couple, uh, Sarah plays a philosophy for a philosophy professor. Who try to say that five times fast. <laughs> um, <laughs> Sarah plays a philosophy professor, and uh, Bill Gunn plays an artist. And you know they're they're having some some issues in their marriage, uh, as we begin to see. And actually, like one of the things, it's funny because as I was watching this, of course, I started thinking about Marriage Story. Oh wow! Um, hmm. And it's so funny because that's like, such a great uh, comparison. Losing ground feels so it's it feels much more sort of internalized, mm. um, you know. I mean, there's so much yelling in Marriage Story. Yeah. And a lot of the frustrations um, that Sarah's character is feeling, um, you know, and the decisions that she's making, they aren't necessarily like right at the surface. Um, You sort of have to intuit them a little bit when it comes to her frustrations with her husband, Um, you know, and... Again, like there's sort of this parallel um, when it comes to like both of them have these careers that they're really in love with and really serious about. But inevitably, you know, I think Bill's character has this, how would you, maybe artistic narcissism. Hoopers. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> right. Um, that he just sort of like forges with with decisions without taking into consideration like his wife's needs or wants, you know, even when he, um, when he's like, Oh, like we should just go upstate, um, you know, and I'm going to basically like paint and draw all these Puerto Rican people, um, you know, and she's like, well, is there a library? <laughs> uh, 
And, mm. you know, so they have this exchange and it's, they're so clearly like talking past each other, you know, because he's almost sort of like contemptuous of this idea, um, you know, that she needs this library so that she can go and continue, you know, her research during the summer on philosophy. Um, and then like when she decides to be in her students, you know, sort of like senior film project, he just, he's like completely taken aback. He's basically just like, where did this come from? <laughs> So first of all, Soraya, I'm so glad that you picked this film. Um, I saw it for the first time not that long ago. I think when it became available on Criterion Channel. Uh But revisiting it right now, it was just what I needed Um, in in so many ways. We were talking on yesterday's podcast about how... uh, uh, we had Michael Koreski on and we were talking about turning to beautiful films, you know, visually and formally beautiful and precise films. Yes. And there's just so much beauty in this film. A lot of it comes from, I think, the fact that uh, Bill Gunn's character is a painter and there's a lot of artistic preoccupation and artistic uh, discussions in this film, uh, discussions of light and space and you know, every frame, <laughs> every frame is gorgeous. And Serret and Bill Gunn, their performances are just so, like you said, so internalized, but also so effusive. Mm-hmm. Something very joyful about this film, even though it's ultimately about kind of a, a, the difficult these difficulties in a marriage. Um, and I, I don't know. That, that's the first thing that always strikes me about this film especially if you think of a lot of 80s films you know this yes. this film is just so uh, it's so distinctive visually and even their fashions i mean every outfit of that sarah wears oh in this God. film i just want <laughs> to own um but also you know i think it's just such a gentle and surprising film while still being very profound yeah it, I find it constantly surprising. For instance, I think it takes you a while to even realize that they're a couple who has problems. Yes. Mm. Because in the initial unfolding of the film, they actually have genuinely sweet and intimate interactions. You know, there's that scene where Bill Gunn is painting Sarah and they have this amazingly kind of this flirtatious uh, Mm -hmm. kind of conversation about how the light is hitting her face. It's it's that kind that conversation captures that kind of intimacy that I think is hard to find even in you know the most kind of precise and romantic movies. It's just so casual yes. and uh, and um, withholds a little bit from you about their relationship. And mm-hmm. so you know when I first watched it, it took me even a little while to figure out that there's something wrong with this relationship. And then when you start noticing what's wrong, when Bill Gunn, uh, his character, starts painting these women, uh, Puerto Rican women, uh, women, invites one of them over, even oh then, you know, it's not like Sarah's reaction is immediate jealousy. And I mean, this no. is the, the, you know, the most kind of wonderfully complex thing about the film. She goes and talks to her mother about her feelings and She says the sex, the infidelity doesn't bother her. It's that he has these private ecstasies that she doesn't. Right. And again, it's, you know, such an unusual, also just unusual to see 
I think women portrayed this way at the time, especially black women and women of color. But mm-hmm. this kind of the fact that our petty emotions like jealousy and envy and, you know, those things can exist on a purely intellectual level, too, for some people. Exactly. And that's the kind of person she is. I, do, I, I just find I always find that so touching and so revelatory to, you know, look past what these kinds of interpersonal problems might seem like and Mm -hmm. really get to the heart of what they represent to some people. What it represents to her is that he is able to let go and give into life's pleasures in a way she can't. Um, And, you know, even when, when Seret's character goes to meet her mother, you think maybe the mother will be, uh, you know, hostile or upset about what her daughter's husband is doing, but they have such a genuine uh, sort of conceptual conversation about what love and desire and infidelity mean. And, you know, they're also intellectual partners. Um, and, you know, as the film goes on, there's like other sort of subtle surprises, surprises in the sense that characters constantly turn out to be way more nuanced and realistic than I think you expect, even with the Puerto Rican woman that. Uh, Bill Gunn's character starts painting and then courting. She's not just some kind of vamp or, you know, a a pretty face who's just taken uh, with this artist or swayed by his charms. She's really independent. There's a there's that uh, wonderful dancing scene where she kind of, you know, chastises him. And everything she says is so extremely kind of profound and eloquent but she also says it in this incredibly playful and colloquial way and really emerges I think as another character in this film another kind of feminine character in this film who um, proves a moral counterpoint to Bill Gunn's character and there's so many quotable lines in this film I just want to write every line of dialogue down especially that final uh, rant that final kind of yelling match mm-hmm. between Sarah and Bill, and Sarah just says something like, uh, "You know, you you pull your dick out all the time, like it's artistic, like it's a goddamn paintbrush. It's just so perfect, <laughs> oh, and it so could good. be. I feel like that line could be inserted in so many films about uh, these kinds of egotistical artists and their relationships <laughs> with women." <laughs> And it would just, it would say everything that needs to be said. <laughs> I, th- I want to come back to something that you pointed out, which is the way that this film sort of like seamlessly integrates these discussions of desire and like looking outside of a marriage, you know, for something that isn't being fulfilled. You know, it feels like a lot of the time um, those things are are seen as, like too base to have serious discussions about or to make sort of serious art about. Um, You know, it's, I think now we sort of like, we associate that with like the Real Housewives franchise or with that latest reality show on Netflix that everyone is so- Love is blind. Love is blind, right? Um, And everything sort of gets like heightened and like dramatized, you know, like- and and it becomes really soapy um and i think one of the things that losing ground does really well is that like 
it makes an argument that like you don't need all of that sort of like extra um, accoutrement um, and yet you can still sort of like earnestly look at a relationship and what's going wrong in it um, without it having to be this thing that that doesn't have sort of any intellectual basis. Um, you know, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that Sarah's character is a philosophy professor, um, you know, and the way that she sort of like thinks about and processes the world and her life. Um, and I really appreciate that about uh, about Kathleen's approach. I think the flip side of that is also interesting to me. Um, you mentioned Marit's story as a comparison. That film was not on my mind uh, before you said it, but you know, I did think while watching the film, in many ways, you see these themes, these very intellect intellectualized approaches towards relationships and marriage and love in the films of Noah Baumbach. And it, I mean, his Uber did come up in my mind as a reference or, you know, Woody Allen or, you know, many sort of French new wave films, um, Garel or Romer. And, and, and there are many examples but at least in 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 Bombach, uh, I was thinking of how those discussions always have a really strong subtext of irony. You know, it's like these people either take themselves too seriously, and so we can't take them seriously, or you know, it's it's some. It, there's always this hint of neurosis and parody underlying the way in which they have to sort of uh, insert their everyday life experiences into this analytical framework that seems to distance them from the stuff of emotion. And what I really loved about this film is even though, you know, uh, both the characters approach their emotions through these abstract and theoretical frameworks, they're very earnest about it, especially Seret's character. She's She takes it seriously. She's very earnest. And it's not like one impulse is subordinated by the other it's not like to access how she's looking at the world we have to in any way minimize her you know I think she makes for a character who even if the way she looks at the world might not be close to all our experiences she's very open and she's portrayed as someone whose feelings are open and whose feelings are both lofty and sort of basic and primal and and universal i really enjoy that about the film yeah hmm. yeah as you were talking about sort of this irony that shows up um in Bombac, like i immediately thought of of laura dern's character in marriage story um you know especially like so after it came out on netflix and and you know you would see the sort of like broader discussion on twitter um, especially of its sort of like awards merits or lack thereof. Um, and I adore Laura Dern. Um, but I also, you know, could see, um, you know, I think someone was basically like, well, she's, you know, she's basically playing like another version of Renata Klein from Big Little Lies. Mm. Um, you know, again, with that sort of heightened, like very specific, like, California, you know, wellness obsessed 
like divorce attorney. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I mean, even the way that Baumbach chooses to present like the theater world in New York, I mean, I think we're supposed to understand that it's weird because he wins, like he's the winner of a MacArthur Genius Grant, but like the theater that we see him making um, during the film doesn't particularly look very good or smart. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah. And it's like, okay, like, how are, how are you approaching this exactly? Uh, that's something that I've been thinking about a lot is the way that just sort of filmmakers and also um, television directors like capture the process of, of making art, of making some other type of art um, other than, you know, other than to uh, recording something for screen um, and whether or not it works. Um, I started mm-hmm. thinking about that because I'm, because little fires everywhere is streaming on Hulu now. Um, and of course, like one of the main characters um, in that series is an artist. Um, but I was also thinking about that, like as I was watching Bill Gunn and sort of paying attention to his sketches um, and how we're, you know, how we take them, you know, the way that he works in his studio, um, which I actually think is something that Kathleen, it appears that she gave a great deal of consideration to. Hmm. Um, like one of my favorite parts is just uh, the scene where um, where Sarah's character is meeting up with her student who's making his film Um, You know, and we see him like talking about mise-en-scene and he's, oh my gosh. I mean, there is still irony in this film, right? Because who walks around one in a top hat and a cape, but also (laughs) like casual wear or a monocle, like who's just sitting in their philosophy class, like wearing a monocle. (laughs) As you do. Who are these people? Um, but I think he's, uh, that which, character is more obviously comic relief, you know? <laughs> yes. Yeah, that line is is definitely like, it's clearer than it is, than it is with Bombeck, where you're just like, is this a, is this purposeful? Is it not? Um, but yeah, there's like that really beautiful framing that we see um as this kid is like choosing his next shot and you've got like the camera lens, like looking through his monocle and then sort of like panning around mm. the balcony that they're filming on. Tilt across that diagonal. I love that when he's kind yes. of calling the shots and um, mm-hmm. yeah. And again, yeah. it sounds, it's very kind of ridiculously theatrical the way he does it, but uh-huh. There's a moment where the film like enacts that shot, right? While he's calling it out. And it's actually a really beautiful right. shot. It captures the the setting in yeah. in a really evocative way. So yeah, I think the film always is at many points playing with that balance between sincerity and artifice. Pick up your copy of the new issue of Film Comment, featuring an extensive interview with Kelly Reichardt, along with an essay on her latest First Cow.
Also, an interview with the directors of the fiery genre mashup Baccarat, Jay Hoberman on Thomas Heise's essay film Heimat is a Space in Time, Michael Kreski on The Perseverance of Cinema, Amy Taubin on Sundance Highlights, and Pietro Marcello on the inspiration behind his Martin Eden. Plus, Spike Lee's trusted costume designer Ruthie Carter, Isabel Huppert in Lulu, George Romero's Lost Film, and much more. Support independent, nonprofit film journalism today at filmcomment.com. I know uh, Kathleen Collins was also a, a writer and a playwright. Are there, I mean, I haven't read the, uh, the collection of stories. Um, uh, is it Whatever Happened to Interracial Romance? But I was curious if there was, uh, in terms of like different forms, if there was any kind of, um, I don't know, any kind of conversation going on between the movie and, and, and those stories she wrote. Oh. I, I, I haven't read them. It's actually on my to-read pile in the loads of time I supposedly have now when I'm not <laughs> Same. panicking. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, we, we, we can, well, we can put that in our recommended reading um, yeah. for, for this. Um, but yeah, I was just thinking about about that. But yeah, it's it's also yeah, just so interesting to have one of the actors also be you know a really interesting filmmaker. Um, I think that's kind of a um, interesting thing to have have there. I I, I mean, there his his movies are are very different, um, but I, I it did kind of get me thinking a bit about yeah, um, and and uh, you know the movie sort of autobiographical uh, as Soraya mm-hmm. said. So the lead character. Uh, is in part a reflection of Collins's own life and background. Mm. And Bill Gunn is a, a great choice for, for his character because he was, you know, an artist in the broader sense of the word. So exactly. I, yeah. especially watching the film with an awareness of that, it, I think adds an interesting layer. And I, and I think that's why also his, the scenes of him painting and talking about art feel so convincing. I think not every actor can right. pull that off well. That's why they feel yeah. sincere too, because I think they do come from uh, a place of actual experience. Yeah. Yeah. For some reason, um, I, 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 I don't know. I went, one of my, my kind of touchstones for, for an interesting depiction of an artist is Nick Nolte. Um, in the New York Stories segment um, that Scorsese directed. Um, also, we were just talking about Rosanna Arquette um, on the last episode. Um, uh-huh. But yeah, I mean, that that's just an instance where you have, he's portraying like a, I mean, it's kind of funny to say it now, but a Soho artist, um, a painter, a big canvas kind of painter, and just all the kind of, I don't know, all the kind of, grief of all and 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 toil that sometimes you feel in um in nolte's character is kind of in, somehow i feel allows him to really get, get across the the actual process of, of being an artist and how a lot of it is is kind of just getting through a lot of psychological baggage um, and working around yourself in some ways um but uh i'm sure a lot of artists would be annoyed that i described it that way i'm saying that's just one facet um but yeah i don't know i did think about that um oh also one other thing um do i remember correctly this is also a new york movie uh it's like it's on the columbia campus and upstate right or exactly yeah new york and new york adjacent (laughs) city city, yes city is city adjacent adjacent, yes yeah um you'll definitely have people from New York state who will be unhappy with that description. No, I take it all back. It is a, an NYS movie through and through. There you go. Um, 
I wish that Stella Maggie, I don't know if she's seen Losing Ground or not, but I wish she'd sort of like taken more from it as she was making the photograph, which was so frustrating for me. And because like so much, I mean, there are, there are parallels in terms of like, it is a film about two people falling in love who, um, if, even if they're not necessarily like exactly artists, they're certainly like art adjacent, right? Because it's a, it's a curator and a journalist, both of whom have this sort of like, at least understood to have this appreciation for the art of like Issa Rae's mother, um, who is the actual like photographer in this movie. And she's an art photographer. Um, But there's so many like pieces of it that don't fully like come together um, in the way that losing ground does um which i also think sort of goes back to you know i'm i then i start wondering okay so how how often are folks teaching kathleen collins in film school Hmm. um you know and because for so long it feels like like she was maybe just sort of forgotten or ignored you know she passes away in 1988 from breast cancer and it's so easy maybe to just sort of like skip over her uh and like i'm very i'm grateful for this sort of like revival of interest in her and her work right like angelica jade bastian wrote about her in like 2018 yeah before everything like shut down like in 2019 you know she was part of this film series at bam um punks poets and valley girls like women filmmakers in 1980s america right she's part of this series of um of black women filmmakers. Uh, and so like, I hope going forward, um, you know, especially because like so much of the way that we discuss film is, is looking back and saying, okay, like who are this person's influences? Like, what does this remind us of? Right. Like, I think there's this great quote um, from this vice article where Miriam Bell is actually talking about, um, you know, how this film, like, uh, well, I'll just read the quote aloud. She said, it's a tale of an artist like Federico Fellini's film Eight and a Half, but for Black women instead of sexist men. By the end of the film, a hole deep in my psyche had been filled, but one I hadn't even known existed before seeing this. And this was published like last year, right? So she's talking about having seen this like in 2017. And Miriam's a pretty like... Um, she's, you know, like she sees a lot. She, she has a pretty complete library um, in terms of of what she has to sort of call upon. Um, and so, yeah, like one of the things I hope as we're in this moment, oh, there's the moped again. That, that's our yeah. neo-realist podcast. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> like one of the things I hope, like as we're in this moment, um, you know, and we're kind of all sort of like digging through like film crates or TV crates or movie crates. Um, or sorry, or music crates, yeah. you know, records, whatever. Um, is that we really do sort of expand our definitions of canon, you know, and come back to whatever normalcy is with 
with a picture that's that's more complete and nuanced and um you know appreciative of of work of folks that you know have been overlooked yeah yeah i mean that's 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 so true i mean i, I it it does seem like a lot of the time, you know, we're all kind of marching to the beat of the drum of just the release calendar and all the marketing associated mm-hmm. with that. And, you know, and a, a lot of the times people kind of, you know, trotting out the, the, the same films. But yeah, I guess one flip side of the current moment is that we, we, you know, hopefully we do have a space where we can explore a bit in our own time, in our own space and yeah, bring bring more attention to, to other, other works and maybe in an even more personal way than ever before, since we're all kind of stuck with ourselves. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. It's not even like we're sitting like in a theater and sort of like experiencing these things together. We're basically all on our couches and yeah. Yeah. Anxiously rifling through <laughs> what to watch, right. what to watch next. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I, yeah, definitely. So yeah, I mean, losing ground is one thing, of course, that um, people can um, easily watch now on Criterion Channel. I'm not making that up, right? That's what you said, right? Yes, it yes. it is on Criterion Channel, and I just want to reiterate that it's. Um, I found it to be a very uplifting watch, and so I really do recommend. It. I think this is the time if you haven't seen it. Absolutely. So um, one thing I I watched, uh, I I was having. Uh, I love the term connectivity problems. Um, so I, I actually Aren't used the DVD. We all yeah, the I know human we're condition. all. That is now the, the, the human <laughs> condition. Only, only connect. Um, so I, I've, I've finally watched the documentary Recorder, uh, the Marion Stokes project, directed by Matt Wolf, um, and this is. Uh, I mean, it's it's actually kind of interesting, like considering like. Um, the idea of something outside the canon. It's about a person who basically taped everything on news channels for, I mean, I want to say upwards of 30 years, um, you know, pretty, pretty soon after people had VCRs for home use and apparently just on the cusp of CNN and it's 24 hours news coverage starting, uh, I guess in 1980 or early eighties. Um, Marion Stokes was busily just keeping multiple VCRs rolling, um, constantly, you know, refreshing the tapes um, and just accumulating this treasure trove, or I don't know if it's all treasure, but definitely a trove of, of cassettes that is kind of like a unique archival record um, of just yeah what was on tv at any given time and this is a movie that tries to grapple with that project and what was driving her although it's it's kind of hard to say entirely i mean you mm. you could just sort of say part of it is a kind of um kind of compulsive or, or or hoarding impulse but there's also um i think the movie makes a certain case that there's also something i don't know i want to say almost avant-garde or, or, or artistic uh, um, about the project. I'm, I mean, there's an interesting way where the, the mm. need for ordering and kind of controlling your life and your input. Um, I mean, you know, I mean, I think there's some common impulses there with, with the way art tries to make sense of things. And 
you know, maybe some of the movie is, is figuring out, figuring that out a little. I mean, she's definitely a bit of a mysterious figure. They talk to her, um, uh, like people who worked, worked for her, um, because she was pretty wealthy and, um, and it's just, you know, not well understood by everyone around her. I mean, and, uh, yeah. And, and then the movie kind of shows us a lot of what's been recorded and has these kind of fugue, kind of these fugue moments where the screen is just divided up. I mean, the September 11th moment where they're showing you mm. everything that's being shown. And um, that's, you know, obviously pretty sensitive uh, material, but it also gives you that sense of recalling that moment of simultaneity and, and, you know, horror and just the unknown and also how great events can exist next to completely ordinary. So like on one side, you're seeing a live feed of the, you know, the, the towers and on the other one, just some morning news show, you know? Um, and I, yeah, I don't know. Maybe mm. that's something that we're kind of feeling now that's strange, it's like you're walking between worlds at any given point where we're all going about our emotions now, but those emotions also are driven by pandemic urgency, but then we're also just living, but it's, I don't know, it's like existing in dual realities in some way. Maybe that's also why I ended up watching the, A Nightmare on Elm Street the other day, because there are all these sequences in that uh -huh. movie where, um, you know, the main character just kind of walks out of her house and it looks like she's walking out of her house, but she's really walking in her dream slash nightmare to go somewhere and do something. Is that so how you've that been feeling, of, Nick? I mean, you know, it's like we're walking in some time bended music video, but there's no music. <laughs> <laughs> I, did, I, I thought it was interesting. You know, you were speculating a little bit about her impulse earlier and mm -hmm. it's it's something I've been thinking about a lot. I saw someone online on social media, I think a historian, uh, basically say that everyone should be keeping diaries right now. We should be writing down everything that's happening. And I was kind of contemplating that. I was thinking, you know, this is an extraordinary time we're living through, something that, you know, in the future, people will probably pour over records off and try to sort of make sense of how things were culturally at the same time like we live at a time where we already record so much of our daily lives you know we're, we're so much people are using social media actually just leaning into it to not just share and connect with people but also sort of record what they're doing every day that it, i don't know that that kind of idea that uh you know when does an archive become important? We could just record everything, right? And it seems like uh, this woman had this kind of arbitrary approach to it from from how you described it. And I, I, I don't know, I guess when you live in times like these and when already so much is being mediated through uh, recording devices and and through social media and screens, it's it's really hard to decide what counts as important and historical. Mm -hmm. And, yeah. you know, how exactly yeah. do we ensure that the right things are remembered and the right things are preserved while also not giving into this endless frenzy of, of uh, memorialization? Um, yeah. I was telling you, 
earlier that uh, you know this I, I was thinking about the German film Heimat is a space and time which was supposed to show at anthology this week uh, is one of the many I think much awaited screenings that have been postponed and I really hope it comes back uh, you know when when all the the dust settles I saw it in Berlin actually a couple a year ago now and I was looking forward to revisiting it even though it's kind of a long film it's um it's about three and a half hours or so and that's another film that just takes a an enormous archive which is the documentarian Thomas Heise's uh fam you know multiple generations of his family uh, who lived through the two world wars and, you know, various chapters of Germany's history. And, you know, he takes all of their correspondences, diaries, various documents, and crafts this archival essay uh, in which he's juxtaposing images of uh, present day Germany and also old photos and, and you know, stubs and, and other paper artifacts and documents. And he's reading out the correspondences that members of his family shared and, and spanning this kind of personal but more expansive historical narrative of um, just living through these various uh, transformative historical moments. And we we have a really great interview with Haisa up on our website uh, as well. And, and he's recounting how he and a student of his went through all of these archives that you know he just kind of had either sitting in his basement or collected from family members and they just spent all these months organizing it chronologically into over 40 boxes something like that and it was also interesting to see that a lot of the decisions he made about making the movie outside uh, out of those materials were ultimately arbitrary because there's no way he could have organized all of that and figured out where to begin or end. And that those decisions were actually dictated a little bit by just uh, the demands of production and the deadlines of, of film production and exhibition and festivals, that sort of thing. And it's it's a really beautiful film. I think there will be you know opportunities to talk about it more and read about it more and kind of pour over it. But you know, it's been sort of on my mind a lot because of, you know, just thinking about how how are we going to represent ourselves or what are we going to leave behind from this time uh, for future historians and whether that will, and how is history created? Is it just going to be arbitrary and what are the artifacts? Can we even anticipate and uh, and sort of choose these things as we live through them? I think that's a really good question, um, especially when it comes to thinking about institutions, you know, which are usually the um, the bodies that we think of as being responsible for that. Um, I'm thinking about just sort of like the controversy that erupted like not too long ago um, with the National Archives. Um and, oh, yeah. and things that they had basically sort of like blocked out um, from the Women's March, um, but also like the issues that they're having just with presidential records mm. um, and the fact that the administration is not necessarily heeding 
the guidelines um, of the, you know, of the Presidential Records Act. Um, Yeah, you know, on the one hand, like there's the situation where, you know, a product of living in the information age is that there's this extreme overload, right? Like I'm thinking about like just how many channels we have now, you know, versus like the eighties right? Um, and what that would be like, just trying to like archive everything and make sense of it. Um, yeah. But also, you know, I'm thinking about sort of the, the organizations and institutions that we sort of think of as being the ones that like formalize, like, what is important for future historians. Um, And actually like when it came, I think to, um, I want to say this was related to like information about what was happening um, at the U S Mexico border. Um, You know, when the national archives like finally responded, they were like, well, we didn't think future historians would be interested in this, Um, Mm. which Hmm. why <laughs> you know what i'm saying yeah, like it's right. a convenient um, convenient ju- convenient judgment to make uh yeah yeah i think one thing that we can definitely maybe choose or anticipate to preserve are are maybe things that reflect on how those in power have have handled these moments of crisis i think that's maybe something that's worth you know making an effort to <laughs> preserve for future scrutiny and i mean and then also thinking about you know what what we record um uh, whose experience is being recorded as well i mean you know and what what kinds of experience because you know if i think about how will i reflect on what's happening now i mean maybe you know my reflections about this current pandemic uh, are going to be significantly different because my experience isn't as close to a uh, as close to a, a life or death experience um, as it is for, for many many other people for any oh, yeah. number of reasons or, or like factors. frontline yeah. workers or just exactly various yeah. kinds I mean, of workers who you know don't for whom social distancing is actually a luxury. Sh- sure, I mean for them it's more more like a war documentary or something, <laughs> you know. Right, right. I was just thinking about that this morning um, because like NPR. Actually, I don't think it was NPR. I think it was the BBC um, had started like asking about the situation in in U.S. prisons and jails, mm. um, and I was like, "Oh, great! Like twenty years from now, you know, we're going to be watching a documentary or you know a sort of like fictionalized adaptation that's a story about like someone who was innocent and convicted anyway." And then, like, ends up, you know, in prison while there's like a corona, you know, right. while there's just a coronavirus like right. infestation in this prison. Um, yeah, you know, and and it'll just be oh great. Twenty years from now, we'll have like the coronavirus edition of when they see us. Oh god. Oh god. Yeah. Um, maybe we can end on Soraya when we were kind of talking a bit before we started recording. 
you I like the phrase you said about security blankets and, and movies that might serve ah, in that way. Yeah. Maybe we can kind of finish um, if, if um, either of you have a particular security blanket movie you might want to mention. Oh, my security blanket movie is definitely Bridget Jones's Diary. Um, <laughs> or pretty much like any like screen Austin adaptation. Oh, yeah. uh-huh. um, so I was, I was very excited about Emma. Um, <laughs> oh, did you see Emma? Did I, you get to see it before? No. Oh. Oh, but it's, so I'm like, please, please, please release this on VOD. I think it's streaming though, because that's a universal focus. Yes, that's it's going to stream along with yeah. Invisible Man and all of that. Oh, I'm so excited. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so that'll that'll be like my new security blanket film. But also, you know, like something that came up as we were watching um, Losing Ground and talking about Losing Ground, I was like, maybe I'll just have like a little like mini like Bill Gunn mm. film festival of my own. I was like, eh, let's watch Gunton Hess. Why not? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is also just terrific. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, and I guess for myself, I, I mean, I don't know if I actually um, talked about my, my comfort viewing. I, I don't know what it would be. My comfort viewing is kind of to just a, an urge to see something new and something I hadn't before. So the comfort is actually uh, the, I'm almost the relief at the potential variety and of a new experience with, with the movies. Um, so, um, but what I did find happened to me uh, relatively recently is uh, Legally Blonde was um, on TV, uh, no less on PBS um, as part of their oh my as their Real 13 series and also presented by uh, Richard Pena, um, the um, uh, you know former director of the New York Film Festival. Uh, I didn't know that. <laughs> I just, it was on and I wow. watched it. And sometimes there are movies where you just watch it to the end. I don't really know why that happened with that movie. Yeah. Definitely a sort of bizarre time capsule a movie where we're supposed to like sympathize with the sorority girl with the porsche um but uh yeah you know kind of uh, uh, uh what can i say <laughs> um and then at the end it was uh yeah um richard, richard penny was there so were you comforted nick i i guess i was i i might have i guess i was in in some odd way i don't know i mean it's also like a pre uh september 11th movie i think i think hmm. um, oh, and yeah. so it's, it also exists in this weird halcyon kind of moment <laughs> you know anytime there's a movie where you see people and they're just like running through the airport right up to the gate it's, <laughs> it's still so strange. you're so right <laughs> yeah very true very true so yeah um different times indeed thank you thank you both for taking the time to talk i hope it, i hope it was therapeutic as it was for me well thank yeah, you absolutely. i hope we do this again yes absolutely yeah just call us up <laughs> <laughs> call in yeah. whenever we're just right. gonna hang out here all day <laughs> yeah we really are literally not going anywhere so um uh, yeah um, all right. Well, we'll wrap up today and uh, we'll, we'll see you, uh, our, our dear listeners and readers, uh, tomorrow. Uh, so signing off. All right. Thank you all. You've been listening to the Film Comet Podcast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comet is a bi-monthly magazine published by Film at Lincoln Center. 
Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth features, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com to purchase a print or digital subscription to Film Comment. Or check out our app, available on Android, iOS, or Kindle. Pick up your copy of the new issue of Film Comment, featuring an extensive interview with Kelly Reichardt, along with an essay on her latest, First Cow. Also, an interview with the directors of the fiery genre mashup Baccarat, Michael Kreski on The Perseverance of Cinema, Amy Taubin on Sundance Highlights, and Pietro Marcello on the inspiration behind his Martin Eden. Support independent, nonprofit film journalism today at filmcomment.com.